Well, we are continuing. We're kind of working chronologically through the uh, Exodus story. We, we camped for a little while at Sinai and we dealt with the Old Covenant systematically. What is it? We looked at the various types of offerings and the garments of the priests and the furniture of the tabernacle and so on and so forth. And we did that for a long time. But we've left Sinai now and we're kind of working chronologically as the people uh, depart from Sinai and move towards the Promised Land. And we saw that they came to Kadesh Barnea and sent spies into the land and the spies came back and they all said it was a good land flowing with milk and honey like God had promised. And yet 10 of the spies made the hearts of the people melt and they decided not to go in. And so the Lord said, all right, fine, then your bodies will drop dead in the wilderness. And they said, no, 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 wait, we will go in. But it was too late. And so that attempt then the next day to go into the land failed. And the people who went up were defeated. And, and they turned then and went into the wilderness. And then someone was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And they put him in custody till it would be clear what should be done with him. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and said he needs to be stoned to death. And so Moses had relayed this bad news of turning back to the wilderness. And this, this bad news as the people perceived it. That the Lord is really serious and strict about his Sabbath. And... and the people were just fed up with Moses' strictness. Never mind that Moses' strictness came ultimately from the Lord, and Moses was just the mouthpiece. So in the beginning of Numbers 16, the chiefs of the people assemble themselves against Moses, and they say, you have gone too far. Well, the Lord caused the earth to open up and swallow these men, together with their wives and their little ones and all of these leaders of the people who had opposed Moses, the ground opened up and swallowed these people. And then we read in verse 41 of chapter 16, Numbers chapter 16, on the next day, on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Well, of this turn of events, the day after the ground swallows up the original troublemakers, John Gill says this, This is a most surprising instance of the corruption and depravity of human nature. Of the blindness, hardness, and stupidity of the hearts of men, which nothing but the grace of God can remove. The images of the awful sights many of them had seen must be strong in their minds. The shrieks of the wretched creatures perishing must be as yet in their ears. The smell of fire was scarce out of their nostrils. And yet, notwithstanding this shocking scene of things, they fell into the same evil and murmur against the men whose authority, having been called into question, had been confirmed by the above awful instances. Obviously, we see here in this second round of rebellion, 
the sinfulness of mankind is on full display. And it's interesting to read what comes next. Look at Numbers chapter 16 and verse 42. When the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. Who? Who turned toward the tent of meeting? Moses and Aaron? The people? The grammar of the sentence is not clear, neither in English nor in Hebrew. Again, I'll quote John Gill here. He says, Either the people did to see whether or not they could observe any appearance of the displeasure of God against them. Or rather, Moses and Aaron looked that way for help and deliverance in this extreme danger, knowing there was no salvation for them but of the Lord. Interestingly though, whoever, whoever is intended by the they in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 42, the theological import of the sentence is actually the same. Because some people, whether it was Moses and Aaron, or whether it was the congregation which was grumbling, some people had the sense that God would have something to say about this round two of rebellion. And so just like somebody who who runs his mouth about someone standing over there and says, I'm not afraid of him. And yet keeps their eye out for what he might do. Right? These people were were grumbling and yet looking over at the tent to see, because they had this sense that God just might do something about this issue. Or Moses and Aaron. If it's them that were looking at the tent of meeting, there's, Lord, deliver us. As you have previously done. We remember back in the beginning of Numbers or back in Numbers chapter 14, rather, when Moses had told them that they had to turn, or or pardon me, back before Moses had told them to turn to go back into the wilderness, when they were still deliberating what to do about going up into the promised land, in Numbers 14.10, they were so discouraged about the giants in the land and the, the difficult prospect of going into the land, that they said they were going to kill Moses and Aaron, find new leaders, and go back to Egypt. And in in Numbers 14.10, we read this. All the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. You see, in that case, the Lord had appeared and intervened to save and to deliver Moses and Aaron. And so, so whether it was the people nervously looking at the tent of meeting as they grumbled again against Moses and Aaron, God's appointed servants, but had a sense that God might do something about this, or whether it was Moses and Aaron themselves looking for the Lord to appear on their behalf to save them, as He had done a couple chapters earlier when the people wanted to stone them and turn back to Egypt. Either way, the theological import of what we read in Numbers 16.42 is the same. People had a sense that God would have something to say about round two of this rebellion. And they were right.
We see this truth implicitly assumed in this text, though not stated explicitly. We see implicit in this text this truth, which some people had a sense of, which is why they looked to the tent of the meeting to see if the Lord would appear there. They had a sense of this truth. The sinfulness of man is incompatible with the holiness of God. In fact, this whole passage that I read for you from Numbers 16.41 all the way through to 18, verse 7, only makes sense in light of that assumption that the sinfulness of man is incompatible with the holiness of God. This whole passage illustrates the truth that the holiness of God means death for sinful men. Of course, we know this is true from other passages of Scripture, like Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Or our God is a consuming fire. We find this throughout Scripture. But we can also see it plainly in this passage before us. Look at how the assumption is confirmed to be correct. Of whoever it was that looked in the direction of the tent of meeting, thinking God is going to do something here. God does respond to this grumbling against Moses and Aaron. In verse 46, we read Moses saying to Aaron, The plague has begun. God strikes down 14,700 of the people by means of a plague because of their sin. So whoever it was, whether it was the people nervously thinking, we're grumbling, but we kind of have this sense that God might do something about it. Or whether it was Moses and Aaron saying, hey, here's the people grumbling again. We think God's going to do something about it. Whoever it was, they were right. God did something about it. He struck down almost 15,000 people for this sin, for this hardness of heart, for this obstinacy, which was on display. And in verse 12 of chapter 17, the people admit, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. This passage of Scripture then is consistent with what we see in other parts of Scripture. The wages of sin is death. Sinful men coming before a holy God are undone. They perish. Sinful men who grumble will be struck down. A holy God will not tolerate the rebellion of people against Him. Our God is a consuming fire. We see it everywhere in Scripture. We see it by the people's own admission in this passage. We see it by God sending the plague in this passage. The sinfulness of man is on full display here in this section of Scripture. And so is the holiness of God. 
Both of these things are on full display and we see here very clearly there is an incompatibility between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. There is a dilemma presented to us throughout the entirety of Scripture which is also present here in this passage. Man is sinful. God is holy. We are undone. We are all undone. What did Isaiah say? When he saw God high and lifted up with the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Woe is me, I am undone. The holiness of God means death for sinful man. Unless, unless a solution may be found. Some way that sinful men might not be consumed by the holy wrath of God. Let's look now at God's solution to this dilemma here in this passage before us. Which is this. God's solution to this dilemma is a priest who intercedes in the midst of an unholy assembly on behalf of the unholy assembly. Look at Numbers 16, verse 46. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. Was this Moses' idea? Think about it. Was this Moses' idea? It couldn't have been. God had struck Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, dead for offering unauthorized fire in Leviticus chapter 10. And just the day before, God had struck dead a bunch more who had taken it upon themselves to offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. Therefore, we cannot surmise that Moses came up with a bright idea here. Not, not sanctioned by the Lord and not commanded by the Lord, that Aaron could take a censer and run from the holy place into the common assembly of the unholy people with incense in it, and God would do anything but strike Aaron dead. Aaron would have been struck down as his sons had been, as the men the day before had been, if this was not the Lord's idea. So between verses 45 and 46, we must have an implied answer from the Lord. Look what happens in 45. God says, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And look at Moses and Aaron. What did they do? They fell on their faces, interceding again. Again for these people who were constantly complaining. Not just against God, but against them. Here they are again interceding for the very people who want to stone them and want to kill them. Here they are interceding, falling on their faces again. Pleading for this wicked people. And verse 46 begins with Moses telling Aaron, take your censer. It's not written, but it's implied here that as they interceded, God answered. 
Obviously, the Lord had revealed to Moses that a plague had begun. Right? For otherwise, how would he know? Moses says in verse 46, the plague has begun. How would he know that unless when he had fell on his face to intercede before the Lord, the Lord told him the plague has begun? So obviously there was some dialogue between God and Moses between verses 45 and 46. And it seems necessary then that not only did God tell Moses, look, the plague has begun, but God also told Moses how the plague might be stopped. And so Moses just passes along the Lord's instructions. Listen, Aaron, we fell down before the Lord and we prayed and we interceded for this people. And the Lord has told me that the plague has begun. But the Lord has told me that you can stop this. Take your censer, put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for that. And look at how Aaron goes. Gil says, though a man high in years and in so high an office. In other words, he's an, he's an old man and, and, he, and he, he bears a high office. And he had been so ill-used by the people. All of these being reasons why he might not run. And yet Gil says, yet he was not only so ready to obey the divine command but so eager to serve this ungrateful people and save them from utter destruction that he ran from the tabernacle into the midst of them. Matthew Henry says, as one tender of the life of every Israelite, he makes all possible speed into the gap to stand between the living and the dead to stop this plague. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the Old Testament people of Israel needed. An appointed priest, called and commissioned by God, and so willing to run into the midst of an unholy assembly to intercede for them, so that the wrath of God might not consume them. Let's look at chapter 17 as a whole and then look at the first seven verses of of chapter 18 in connection with this main idea now, each section in turn. 17 is basically once the plague stops, God doesn't stop. God wants the people to be abundantly clear that Aaron is his appointed priest. So Aaron has run into the midst of this assembly with that censer with incense on it and has stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But God says, look, I'm not yet done making my point. Bring a staff from the leader of every tribe in Israel. Write your name on it. And I'm going to make the staff of the one whom I choose sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel with which they grumble. Number 17 and verse 5. And so everyone turns it in. And they deposit these in the holy place. And the next day, Aaron's staff 
had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. Now look, I don't know much about gardening. I don't, much, I don't know much about growing things. But I do know this. If I take a, a dead stick, there, there is no greenhouse I can put it in where I'm going to go back the next day and find ripe almonds. Uh, it's not rocket science. This was a, a miracle, obviously. Right? And so the Lord is making the point. This man... I have chosen this man to be your priest, to stand between the living and the dead, to stop the plague, to intercede for you that I might not consume you in my wrath. Though you are an unholy people, though I am a holy God, I have appointed a man to be a priest for you. Now this should, this should make everybody else stop grumbling like, hey, we can be priests too. Who says only he can be priests, right? This, God, is, God is still dealing with that original complaint that Korah and those guys have brought, that everyone's holy and why should he just be the only holy one? God's dealing with that. But, but notice that God is graciously giving this unholy people a priest. So see not only the chastisement and the rebuke of God in, the, in this action of making Aaron's staff sprout but see also the grace in making Aaron's staff sprout that the people could be sure that this wasn't just Aaron exalting himself this wasn't just nepotism where Moses shows favoritism to his brother and says hey look this is a holy guy but these people can be sure that there is divine power at work installing Aaron as priest and respecting the priestly work of Aaron. There's divine sanction to this. Which if you were an unholy Israelite in the wilderness with a holy God would be a great comfort to know. Now, chapter 18. Some might think that this is unrelated to what goes before as it gets into regulations of duties of priests and Levites. And even after seven, it goes on and on this way. But I, I wanted to at least touch on 18 because it is connected. Verse one of chapter 18 connects it with the word so. So the Lord said to Aaron. Well, that's how the chapter begins. Obviously, that's following from what precedes. And then verse five says this, And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that they, there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. Well, again, that's alluding back to the events of 17, the plague. So 18 is not beginning a new section of Numbers. 18 is following from this narrative. And chapter 18, again, emphasizes God's provision for his people to draw near. It is grace. Look, what is the concern of the people? In Numbers chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, they say this. Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, 
everyone who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? So after God makes the ground swallow up Korah and Dathan and all those guys, and after God sends a plague to destroy almost 15,000 of the people, and then God makes Aaron's staff sprout and makes it so clear that Korah and Dathan and all the people were in the wrong. Finally, the people are getting the sense of it. We are wrong. God is right. We are unholy. God is holy. And they draw finally, if only temporarily, the right conclusion. We are undone. We are undone. Everyone who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. They get it. Right? So, the Lord said to Aaron, chapter 18 then, in what follows, emphasizes God's provision for His people to draw near. They're concerned that they won't be able to draw near because they're so unholy. So what does God do? He says this, to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers the Levites from among the people of Israel, they are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil. And you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. God had already revealed in Numbers chapter 1 and in Numbers chapter 3 that it was the priests and the Levites to be doing the work within the tabernacle. But the uniqueness of Numbers 18 is that God shifts the responsibility for the breach of this commandment from the people to the priests and the Levites. And in Numbers 18... God says, you priests and you Levites, you have the responsibility to make sure that everything that's done in the tabernacle happens just so. And if there is anything wrong that happens or transpires, you will bear the guilt of that. Alright? Now, if you were among the rest of the assembly, would, would this be... Would this make you less likely to draw near or more likely to draw near? Just think about it. More. More. Because if you go into the 
tabernacle from the tribe of Simeon and you make some mistake, you know who's responsible for that? The priests. You see? So what God does is He he doubles down and He intensifies the appointment of Aaron and Aaron's family to the priesthood. And his choosing of the Levites to minister in the tabernacle. Dealing with this idea that the whole assembly is, is holy. He intensifies this idea. But what he also does is he also intensifies the responsibility of the priests. That they are going to be, have to make sure that everything is done circumspectly. Because God is going to hold the priests and the Levites accountable for what happens within the boundaries of the tabernacle, right? So what God is actually doing here in chapter 18 is making a development in the cultic law of the old covenant people so that the rest of the nation who were terrified to draw near after God showed forth His holiness in contradistinction to their sin so that they would feel more comfortable drawing near again. Isn't that grace? We see the sinfulness of man on full display in this passage. As Gill said, the corruption and depravity of human nature of the blindness, hardness, and stupidity of the hearts of men here in this passage. We also see the holiness of God in being prepared to make the ground open and swallow up those who rebel against Him and to send a plague to wipe out 15,000. We see the incompatibility between the sinfulness of God and the holiness of man. Or, sorry. I said that backwards, didn't I? The sinfulness of man and the, the holiness of God. We see that the holiness of God means death for sinful men unless a solution can be found. And we see here God doubling down on His appointment of a priest. And He says that this priest is going to be His appointed representative to intercede for the people and that He is going to bear responsibility for any of their guilt connected with the Old Covenant cult, rituals, celebration, uh, not sorry, not celebration, ceremonies, right? So the people can now be confident after the events in Numbers 16, 17, and the instructions in 18, that they may draw near to God through the appointed priest, and that if they inadvertently make any errors, God will hold the priest accountable for any errors with respect to the ceremonies and the rituals associated with it. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that I'm going to tell you that Aaron in this passage typifies prefigures, foreshadows Christ Jesus. We know that 
the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. Hebrews tells us that explicitly. In fact, it tells us not only did the blood of bulls and goats never take away sin, but it could never have. Which means from the institution of it, it was only ever designed to teach and to instruct about something else. It stands to reason then that the priests who offered up the blood of bulls and goats were never actually able to deliver sinful men from the holiness of God. Right? This whole system was instructive. This whole system was symbolic and representative of something else. Just as the blood of bulls and goats could never have taken away sin, the priests taken from Aaron's lineage could never deliver sinful men from a holy God. And yet they taught us and instructed us, prefigured and foreshadowed something greater and something better. Who is Christ Jesus. Both the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the High Priest according to Hebrews, who is actually able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. So we have, we have this temple, this meeting place between God and man, which foreshadowed Christ Jesus, the meeting place between God and man. We have these animal sacrifices, which foreshadowed Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was the ultimate sacrifice. We have these priests who prefigured and foreshadowed Christ, the priest. All of this is pointing us to Christ Jesus. So look at this passage and see then God dealing with our dilemma. We are undone. We see God high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. We catch a glimpse of His holiness. We catch a glimpse of our sin. We read in the scriptures of our fallen condition. We read in God's law, you shall not do this. You shall do this. And we say, we are undone. We are undone. We perish. We cannot draw near. We look around us and we see volcanoes and tsunamis and earthquakes. And we see cancer. And we see all kinds of debilitating Illnesses and diseases and disabilities and car accidents and tragedies. We see a plague destroying us all. We are undone. We are undone. We perish. Ah. But God has given instructions to a priest to run into the midst of this unholy assembly. To make intercession for us. You know what he said? Behold I have come to do the will. Of my father. I have come. Where did he stand when he spoke those words? In the midst of the unholy assembly. Being ravaged by a plague. Did he come unwillingly? Begrudgingly? No he came like Aaron. Tender over the lives of every one of those whom the Father had given to Him. 
Hasten it, that none should perish. Jesus came to stand in the midst of the unholy assembly between the living and the dead to make intercession for us to stop the plague. And there are those who grumble and say, well, there are other priests, there are other ways to God. Now, God will swallow them up. God will consume them. God has caused the staff of Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone to sprout and to blossom and to bring forth ripe almonds. There is no other name given under heaven and among men by which we must be saved. There is only one priest, but hallelujah, there is a priest. And there is a priest who loves us. There is a priest who cares about the children of Israel. There is a priest who runs into the midst of the unholy assembly to make intercession for us. There is a priest whom God has said he will bear the guilt of our infractions of new covenant religion. When we don't pray as we ought, guess who bears the guilt for that? Our priest. When we don't read our Bible as we ought, guess who bears the guilt of that? Our priest. When we profane the Sabbath day, guess who bears the guilt of that? Our priest. When we have other gods before our God, you know who bears the guilt of that? Our priest. When we have religious infractions, you know who God holds responsible for that? Our priest. So perish the thought that you are undone. Perish the thought that you will perish. Because there is a appointed priest whom God has set his seal of approval on as the legitimate appointed priest. And God has given him the authority to act as a priest. And God will respect his service as priest. And God has put on him the responsibility of being a priest to bear the guilt for our infractions of new covenant religion as Aaron bore that responsibility under the old covenant types and shadows. So are we all to perish? No. We are not all to perish. We shall all be raised. We shall all be changed. Because we have a great high priest.